Welcome to the European Greens podcast, where we talk about the way forward to a greener and fairer Europe, together with green leaders and activists. The European Greens are a European political party that brings together national parties sharing the same green values, like democracy, feminism, support of LGBTQ+, and climate action. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and together, let's green our future. Welcome back to the Green Talking Heads. In this episode, which is part two of two, we're taking you back to the European Green Party's 35th Council. A quick reminder again about what that is. It's the highest decision-making body of our party, and a gathering that happens twice a year and brings together hundreds of Greens from around Europe. During the three days of the Council, we agree on political positions, exchange knowledge and ideas, elect new political leadership, and also, of course, have fun. While we were at the Council in Latvia, we had the opportunity to talk to some of the fantastic Greens and green-minded politicians from across our Green family. In our last podcast, part one, we talked to Greens occupying positions of power in various levels of government. In this episode, we talked to some of our Greens who are in opposition, where they play a crucial role in holding governments accountable and pushing for more progressive political agendas. Our Secretary General, Mario Garcia, spoke to Urzula Zelinska, co-chair of Partia Zuloni and national member of parliament in Poland, who talked to us about the threat to rule of law in Poland and the EU's role in helping tackle this, and Rui Tavares, a Portuguese national member of parliament, city councillor in Lisbon and co-sperks for Libre, who focused on how we can build a bridge between the urgent climate policies needed and social priorities, particularly in the south of Europe. Hello, um, our dear friends from the Green Talking Heads. We are very happy to have with us today Ursula Zielinska. I hope I'm saying it right. Perfect. Okay, thank you. Um, and she's the co-chair of uh, Partia Zieloni. Uh, she, those are our um, friends from Poland, the Polish Greens, and she's a member of the uh, Polish Parliament. Same. And uh, so Ursula... Uh, um, is the, since 2018, is the co-chair of the Zieloni, and uh, she comes from an activist background. She participated in direct actions in defense of the Vielovitsa uh, forest and against the harsh abortion laws adopted in Poland. Um, she's very engaged with the independence of the judiciary and the rule of law in Poland. Thank you for being with us, Ursula. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. We are... Real pleasure. Yes, we're very happy to have you here. So um, we want to exchange with you um, a couple of uh, yeah um, questions because we're very interested. So on what you think. Huh? During the last years, the independence of the judiciary has been under threat in Poland. Huh? Uh, on 2017, the Commission launched this infringement procedure and uh, the European Court of Justice has also ruled that the laws approved uh, by the Polish Parliament were kind of contrary to the EU law. There has been also this issue with the RRF, which are these funds the, that the European Commission adopted after the pandemic or in view to face the consequences of the pandemic. And I think that they're having on hold until a couple of days ago. I mean, tell us, tell us, um, how do you counteract? How do you face this? What are the challenges that you're uh, finding uh, in, uh, in this, with this huge challenge of, that your country is going through? Uh, from the Polish Greens uh, um, and uh, being in, in Parliament also uh, with a, let's say, limited capacity, but like very present in, in the Polish Parliament. Which we have to be because there is three of us, 460 MPs in the Polish Parliament. There are three Green MPs yes. and we're very proud of this, but yeah, it's the start. So we need to grow. And it's challenging times. Um, it's been now just under three years uh, since we um, in Parliament. And um, yeah, most of this time I have spent not just in Parliament chamber, but out in the streets protesting. As you said, um, there was um, judiciary is not just under threat. It's really being uh, slowly um, forced into submission to the ruling party. Prosecution is completely biased by now. Um, so you can never be certain of a just um, court ruling in Poland. 
And there are things happening in Poland which slip under the radar of most of us. Even in Poland, they start slipping under the radar, which that's the worrying uh, sign. Uh, and that's, for example, um, the fact that some of the big region of Poland is currently under um, a special state of emergency and it's in a practical lockdown. So neither me as an MP or my friends from the European Parliament, MEPs or regular people cannot enter a certain area of 183 towns and villages in Poland, in the east side of Poland, along the Polish-Belarusian border. Mm -hmm. It's like an exclusion zone. And that's completely uh, against the European freedom of movement foundations of Europe, completely against the Polish constitution, which guarantees you basic right of freedom of movement as well. And yet it's happening. Mm. And so that uh, the whole discussion over rule of law in Poland, it's not theoretical, it's not remote, it's really touching on our daily lives. Many of my friends, activists, have been prosecuted by the police for just simple protesting, peaceful protesting, sentenced and really burned out because of how unjust the system has become and how politically uh, misused it's been. So, And that applies to the recovery funds. Unfortunately, I believe that decision that the Commission to release the recovery funds to Poland, despite of the fact that Poland doesn't fulfill the uh, conditionality mechanism, mm -hmm. was absolutely wrong and will not is not helpful. And let me be super clear: a Polish people, Poland, absolutely desperately needs the funds to for just transition many issues, post-COVID issues. But it's precisely the point that it's people needed and not a corrupt government. Now, the problem is that the way the funds are designed, um, it's quite easy for the central government to put the hand over it and not let it go to where it's needed, so to the local um, councils and, and municipalities. And the current Polish government has already proven in the past years that it's using funds, mm -hmm. even European funds, to push and press people and whole you know, uh, councils and cities and mayors and whole groups of people into submission, into being really biased um, and it's actively using the money for it. The example was uh, the latest, one of the latest examples was the COVID funds. National COVID funds have been released only to those uh, councils and municipalities which clearly are ruled by the law and justice mm -hmm. of the, the current government. 89% have gone to those councils and only 11% went to the councils governed by the opposition uh, and it was analyzed it there was a, a, a report heavily criticized in media um, the, the the whole issue has been really in a public in a public spotlight and then two other rounds of the covid funding went out and they did exactly the same so really actively used it to promote people who support the current government and not those or in the, in the opposition. Um, and so my concern is, and it's not just my concern, there is um, their opposition, um, and just regular people believing that this money, the recovery fund, can very easily be used now to help fund the election mm -hmm. result rather than to help fund the people's yes. projects and transition or the real recovery, and that's the core of the issue. And it's just European Commission not being, not sticking to their principles. Yes. If you have the conditionality mechanism, why do you sudden, yes. suddenly give up on this? I like what you're saying is actually very, very sad because, I mean, 
we're just talking about, as you were saying, yeah, um, that the Polish people are living under circumstances that are much worse than their European fellow um, citizens. Realize. And we are contributing uh, to this by uh, uh, somehow um, not sticking to what we have agreed among ourselves is to condition that the common money needs to be uh, follow a certain principles in order to have access to it. But I mean, you're being very explicit about the role that the European Union is playing here. Um, maybe if I can ask you, under your opinion, what would be the way in which the European Union could design or should design in order to uh, somehow support directly the Polish people and somehow overcoming the, uh, the national government? We know that this is a difficult thing because currently we all know that the European Union is still somehow uh, a union of member states. So uh, it's a contradiction in its principles um, to, to kind of overcome the member state. But we also know that the European Union is much more than only member states. And we Greens are really asking for a European Union that is uh, uh, peoples-based. Uh, so, I mean, what should be the design uh, of these you know, common funds uh, in order to benefit uh, the real Polish people beyond the corruption that you're pointing out? I think first principle, you know, the whole idea of conditionality mechanism, I think it was really good and it's, it was very much needed and it's great, it's in place. But now the next step is let's stick to it. Let's really demand the conditions to be fulfilled because before we release the money, which we are, we are all, all Europeans are taking the loan. So our children will be paying this back. Exactly. So we're all in it together. So the basic principle is great. Let's now follow it and let's not deviate because Mr. Orban, next thing, he will say, well, um, commission has allowed Poland to do that. Yeah. Why can I not? Yes. And you're diluting the whole system. So let's stick to it. And then the next idea direction could be to really provide for more direct mechanism mm -hmm. of injecting the funding into regions directly where it's needed mm -hmm. for the projects. The projects can be assessed by partially by the country, partially by the commission, and money can possibly flow directly or more direct, directly to local councils, municipalities, towns, cities. I know the way the Polish um, recovery fund was designed, the, the execution of it uh, was such that the grants are going through the central government and only the or mostly the loans will go to mm -hmm. councils. Now, the councils and cities are already hugely in debt, so they can't take more loans. Yeah. So they will not, or in a very limited way, benefit from it unless they support PIS, which is the current ruling Law and Justice Party. A nice abbreviation, by the way, in Polish. <laughs> yeah, it sounds um, not, not a coincidence, possibly. Um, so the whole design that it allows a government, however corrupt it is, to take the money and manage it by themselves, that needs changing. I think if we are dealing with Orban's and Morawiecki's and Kaczynski's of this world, we have to outclever them and we have to direct more of those funds more directly to the regions, to the cities, to people who will deploy them on the ground. Um, and then obviously really scrutinize the how it's um, spent and implemented. So the milestones are good. They are still giving us some buffer and, and, and I think it's very positive. Question is, are we now able to really scrutinize the milestones? Does the commission have the manpower? Do we have enough transparency to see for everyone mm -hmm. how, they, how the money is spent? Because this is our money that we exactly. have borrowed from the banks, all of us Europeans. So we have to all have the transparency um, and the data needs to be in a bright daylight on the table so we can, you know, anytime check. Is it really being spent? Is it invested in at least 37% uh, into climate and green projects? Exactly. Or is it less? I think that needs to come as well. But 
obviously it's it's a process i understand this it's not easy i think the commission and the U- the european union has already managed to do a lot more over the past two years mm-hmm. with all those crises happening than it has done ever before so um i think in a way we're on the right path but more needs to be done and more clever and more tough as well because we know the appeasement politics we know what it did in the east of of Europe, right? It didn't work. So we cannot appease prime ministers who don't obey the law. Exactly. Um, Here's a clear tip for uh, the European Greens to also dig in and uh, from based on a bottom-up experience, which is, please, let's look into this direct channeling of the European funds to the municipalities and regions uh, in a way that uh, uh, we guarantee all the principles that are behind of uh, the use or the should be behind the use of public spending. But Ursula, thank you very much for for sharing with us. I still want to hear from you because I'm sure that uh, you are doing a great job. And despite these difficult conditions in which you are doing politics and fighting for improving uh, Polish people's life and making this world a little bit greener, share with us uh, a successful story. Tell us what what can you bring to, to these desperate, not only desperate, but regular Polish people that want someone that voice uh, their needs? It, I think it just happens, so happens right now with the war and, and, and you know, all the all the worries and all the crisis where we're worried about basic things. Will we have a warm house in winter and will we have safe space in Europe? That all of our Greens proposals, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where it seemed completely distant and people didn't understand them, they now, they, they are offering a perfect response to the security issue, to the energy crisis issue. What we're saying is let's have renewable energy, which is not only good for climate, but it just happens to be the cheapest right now. <laughs> so if we only, you know, did this, we will have cheaper heating for winter that is renewable, good for climate, good for air, our air that we breathe in. So, and it's also safe because we're not dependent on Russia gas or oil. We would not be dependent on other countries that are equally not yes. very democratic sourcing fossil fuels uh, that are currently supplying us with fossil fuels. So oh, if we are able to implement those proposals that we're really campaigning for, we would be warm, safe and secure, and we would be breathing clean air. And the great thing I'm observing in Poland, even the quite coal-bound conservative Poland, is that right now, where our proposals even two years ago seemed still quite radical and distant, right now, all of the opposition agrees. And we we could within probably one day draw a common program, common agenda that we on most points we really agree on. And and that's my that's giving me hope. So our programs, our proposals that were seeming distant, seeming uh, very sophisticated are now really a response to peace, security, warmth, and just a safe space. This is giving me hope for the future because I can see how we will deploy that now. Sooner or, you know, faster or slower. It's now the, that it's a question about speed of deploying it, really. Can we do it as fast as um, we developed vaccine as uh, for COVID? <laughs> exactly. I think we, we can try it. We could, yes. If we developed something that took previously three to ten years in nine months i think we can now do just transition in less than another three decades i think we can do it in the in the next 10 years and i think we can cut the emissions because at the same time we will be giving people safe warm uh, homes cheap energy and clean air and i think what else do you need for safety and future Fully right. Let's just go and do it. Yes, fully right. Thank you very much. Um, dear listeners, Ursula Zielinski, she's green oasis in the, the Polish desert. So uh, I hope you got inspired. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Take care. <laughs> Thank you. Ciao.
Hello, Green Talking Head listeners, and welcome to this new podcast. Uh, today we're here with uh, Rui Tavares. Rui is a former uh, member of the European Parliament that uh, joined the Green Group uh, a while ago, but uh, he has uh, the singularity of being the uh, original rapporteur of the first file on Hungary at the European Parliament. This uh, file that uh, has somehow traditionally been allocated to the Greens and where uh, Rui uh, initiated a great job that then Judith Sargentini uh, took over and when is uh, implementing. Rui um, was a co-founder of uh, Livre, um, a Portuguese uh, Green Party, uh, and he is uh, a local councillor in uh, the City Council of Lisbon, as well as a member in uh, the Assemblea da República, uh, the National Parliament, uh, Parliament of Portugal. Rui, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. We are very, very happy. Glad to be here with you. Good. Um, so uh, we just want to uh, maybe hear from you a bit of... Uh, What is your perspective? Huh? We understand that Portugal went uh, through uh, uh, elections in January this year. Somehow, Antonio Costas managed to get the absolute majority that he wanted. We still don't understand uh, how this happened, but uh, because it doesn't always happen. Huh? Mm -hmm. uh, big parties trigger elections with uh, one ambition or one desire, and it doesn't always happen. And in this case... Um, Yeah, well, I mean, he really got what uh, he wanted. Maybe you have an analysis over this. And then uh, also uh, Chega managed to increase the representation in the national parliament. Um, Portugal and Spain have been the countries where the extreme right had latest, unfortunately, uh, joined the, uh, the parliament. Maybe you can have an assessment of uh, this overall situation and how is Libre positioning itself uh, in this framework? Okay, so uh, insofar as Portuguese politics can interest uh, people from outside, I think that what just happened with the snap elections in Portugal and then the absolute majority of the Socialist Party is a lesson in how when progressive forces cooperate in good faith with all their differences, the electorate may well be a majoritarian one and increasing. So for six years we had uh, a kind of an haphazard Uh, cooperation between forces of the left that had the, the funny name of Geringonça uh, in Portuguese, which means contraption. So it was not the formal coalition. It was not uh, a government with ministers of several parties, but it did work uh, as contraptions are wont to do. You use them because you need to solve a problem. And for the Portuguese electorate, uh, namely people with progressive values, social left-wing, green issues, they were very much okay with that. Uh, that working contraption has been done with. Blame can be attributed either way, from the center-left to the radical-left or from the radical-left to the center-left. But mostly people have decided that if they could not have the plural left-wing coalition working together, that they would rather put their eggs in the basket of the center-left rather than risk an alliance of the right-wing with the far-right. So people saw this as mainly a strategic error on the part of the uh, radical left, uh, UA, NGL parties, the left bloc and the Communist Party that went for an anticipated election where, where none was warranted, where none was needed. Uh, and they ended up uh, punishing parties to the left of the socialists with the exception of Livre. So the left bloc... Uh, were reduced to a fourth of their uh, parliamentary representation, the Communist Party to half, uh, the Animal Rights Party PAN to also, also a fourth of their representation, and Livre, which had been, uh, you know, uh, in the past in Parliament, uh, got back into Parliament, and now we believe we're there to stay, because what we try to offer is uh, a policy of Uh, honesty towards our goals. We are indeed a cooperative party that wants to reach. We are working on the four-day working week on uh, insulating homes in Portugal. We have had now with the new budget major victories in both these areas. We have extended unemployment subsidy to victims of domestic violence 
if they wish to resign from their jobs in order to have the unemployment subsidy to reorganize their lives and gain economic autonomy. These are all new issues in Portugal. They have been realized uh, and people do enjoy seeing, you know, a, a new green left agenda in Portugal. As to the far right, no, Port just wanted yes. to interrupt you before you enter into uh, analyzing a mm. bit more um, this green agenda. So is is your um, recipe for uh, junior partners in coalition governments slash whether inside the government or from outside to really uh, campaign with this open message of, yes, we are going to uh, cooperate no matter what um, as to consolidate and increase their strength within this coalition government. Um, uh, do I understand? Well, it's just because the case of uh, current, um, a lot of Greens are a coalition mm. uh, partners and mainly junior partners mm. in government. So do you think that this is the way forward in order to increase from a more junior position towards gaining more, uh, stronger majority or stronger strength uh, in parliaments? Or uh, because you, you just said that, you know, the fact that some of the... Uh, left said mm. we're not going to cooperate anymore punish them so can you elaborate yeah. a bit there yeah the, the the thing that i will change in the in the way you phrase the question i'll do yes. my draft changes yes. will be strike through no matter what we we need to be uh, clear and honest with everybody we are willing to cooperate it's not no matter what okay so we set what the, the kind of agenda that we want to implement it needs to be clear that we want to implement that agenda. Uh, changes need to happen in practice. Uh, we don't have much time to, 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 to solve the ecological crisis. Uh, differently from some parties in the radical left, we cannot wait for the next mode of production to come and then we will save the planet. Yes. It's not possible that way. We are not here for ideological purism. And after all, contemporary politics is coalition politics, whether you like it or not. Contemporary societies are, are very complex. People have plural identities. And so it is you know, normal that you end up having a situation, you can even have an, a Dutch situation where you have 10 parties in parliament with more or less the same size. And if a country is going to be governed, it is going to be governed via a coalition. At the same time, contemporary societies, complex as they are, they are also well-informed enough at least in OECD countries, but also all, all around the world. People have uh, easy access to information uh, so that they understand the difficulties of coalition making and compromise making. So you're always being assessed and evaluated on whether you deliver on the agenda that you want to implement or not. And as we, with a practical example, as we were uh, negotiating this budget, which is a budget that was long overdue because it was the budget that had uh, not been negotiated before that had led to yes. you know the collapse in the governing left-wing coalition and and then all the way to the elections the electorate was very clear they wanted the budget that's why they gave an, an absolute majority to costa at the same time they wanted costa to prove that an absolute majority did not mean that only the socialist party agenda will do so in the elections, uh, at a certain point, we were ridiculed for this idea of extending the mm -hmm. unemployment subsidy, not only to victims of, of domestic violence, but also to couples who wish to move to lesser you know, populated areas and people who have education plans that they need to finish their degree, their master's, their mm -hmm. doctorate, whatever they need to finish their uh, secondary school. And... They need to access the unemployment subsidy in order to finish their degree. So four months ago, this was you know the stuff. We cannot change that. Classic social security only works if you if you are fired, you get the unemployment subsidy, not the other way around. In four months, we managed to prove that the creation of social security was served the purpose of telling people we are by your side. Whether you need to reorganize your life because things are not going well, whether you need to fly we, yeah. we 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 are there to you've made your you, you you've made your contributions to social security you need to finish your degree everybody will win if you get a better job in the end and contribute more for social security in four months with first convincing the public uh then the government at a certain point if the measure is popular they need to support it yes. one way or the other we didn't get everything we want to have something that's 
sorely lacking in, in Portugal, which is school transportation, school mm -hmm. busing that is ecological, that mm -hmm. is electric, that runs on renewable energy as, as much as possible, so that parents do not need to make those private car rides. And private and public yeah. school busing can double as busing for senior citizens, people with disabilities that need to go to the uh, uh, to hospital to take care of their you know, yeah. documents, whatever. This was rejected. Yes. We need to have pilot projects soon enough on, on that. But it's also a very popular agenda. Yeah. And it was uh, taken up, yeah? Uh, it's taken up by the, by the public. It's being asked for both people in urban areas and in rural areas. So it's popular. They're going to have to uh, end up producing something in that area sooner or later. With the four days working week, from one week to the other, everybody was talking about that. And that, by the way, leads us to the far right. Yes. At a certain point in the in the campaign, everybody was talking about uh, uh, life in uh, imprisonment in Portugal yes. because that was a far right proposal, and because journalists go after the news story in town because there was you know wavering on the part of other right wing parties if life imprisonment was acceptable for them to form a government or not. For 15 days, everybody was talking about that in Portugal. Now, mind you. Life imprisonment in Portugal was abolished in 1865, if I'm not uh -huh. mistaken. That was the first country, I think, in the world to abolish life imprisonment. You know, Victor Hugo sent a letter to Portugal congratulating Portugal on that. And the far right managed to put it in the agenda in 2022. At a certain point in the debate, I was attacked for Lever having a proposal for a pilot project on universal basic income. Uh, it was one of the things that we had in the program, but it was just a pilot project. We are not expecting to have UBI being uh, uh, the subjects in the campaign. But lo and behold, UBI replaced life imprisonment in the campaign. At a certain point, there's a journalist who asked me, uh, what's, the, what's the purpose of UBI? And my first reaction was, well, UBI is the cure for life imprisonment. Because the cure for the far right setting the agenda is us having what I call objects of political desire. You know, some people agree, some people don't agree, but it will, it, it, at least people are going to be talking on a desirable future rather than a future that they fear, yes. which is the agenda of the far right. So this serves both purposes. It sets the agenda and some things are practical and realizable and they are going to happen. So a progressive agenda always needs, it's not kind of an exile uh, of an Excel uh, yeah, uh, list. list. It is both a visualization of a desired future and some of the practical steps to arrive there. And people fill in the gaps with their own culture, uh, uh, you know, ideological tradition, with their sens sensibility, so on and so forth. What green parties need to give is the idea of this desirable future and some of the steps that we need in order to get there. That's, that, that's what we've been doing well. And it time. has somehow worked, yeah? I mean, is that a recipe that you would uh, recommend to uh, other green parties in Southern Europe? I mean, we are uh, lacking strong majorities mm -hmm. or strong uh, forces. We do have green parties here and there and mostly everywhere, but we are lacking strong uh, representations in the national parliaments in big countries in Europe. Is that your recipe for uh, for the green parties in Europe? The, what is uh, a bit of your assessment of the next step for the green uh, option to be a, a consistent one uh, along in the region? Well, first of all, I think this is the, the, the green recipe that's already been... I don't know if it's been... If it, if it has been codified. I don't know if, if there's a cookbook where we have that, but that's the kind of things that I've learned when I was with the Green Group in the in the European Parliament and, and that we see that other Green parties are doing across Europe. And then we, we can season it in the in the southern way, if you will. But I think that, for instance, in Spain, there are you know Green parties doing these kind of things uh, and they're working well. That's also what people are talking about, regardless if they are parliamentary representation is still you know of just a couple of, of MPs but it's going to increase because if you look at social service uh, um, that are pan-european like the European social service social value survey uh -huh. you see that southern countries and southwestern countries like yeah. Spain and Portugal 
in terms of... Do you include Italy there? Italy as well, but I, I know less well. I, I, I don't I don't remember that well the, the, the social value survey results from Italy, but I think that this also applies. In terms of uh, belief in climate change, belief in science, uh, acceptance of other people's ways of life, of uh, sexual orientation, immigration, so on and so forth, our countries, our societies are up there in these surveys with the Scandinavians in terms of their openness. But then what's, uh, what's different about uh, our countries is in terms of trust in politicians and parties and civic participation, then the Portuguese case, it's the worst. It's, it's results in terms of the level of trust in politicians are as low as in the Caucasus. Mm -hmm. So it, in which... In a way, if we do things right, uh, offers a reality in which green parties can really make a big change because people have the same values that you find in Scandinavian countries yes, and in other yes. North uh, European countries. But then, you know, politics is not working. Yes. Our role is to show that politics can work. The seeds are there, yeah? We just need to make them grow, huh? Yeah, I'm completely... Sure, but also there's something important, if I may, for, for, for the EGP and for, for green politicians across the continent, which is to see that kind of, of green agenda that is needed in, in Southern Europe, both for historical reasons. We have had, we all have had, well, except for Italy, but we have had the um, dictatorships until yes. very long, yes. Portugal, Spain and Greece. We are societies that are polarized and where, you know, left versus right works. Yes. Uh, if you go to an election and you say, I'm neither of the left or the right, you will end up losing votes for both sides. Yes. Because tactical voting and also strategic voting in Portugal, I think in Spain as well, works like this. If I need to stop the right wing from governing, I need to know what all the left wing parties are going to do. If they are, if they are available to work together... I will vote for them. If they are unavail unavailable to working together, I will punish them as it happened. If your party is telling me that they may work with the left wing and the right wing, it does not serve the central purpose of my tactical voting, which is to stop the other side from governing. Yes. Which this means is that a green agenda in the South, in my view, needs to be a green left agenda. And it's going to be green, but also red. And that's the successful way to do it in the South. I think. Let me just ask you one question, because I fully agree with your analysis. Now, my only, let's say, um, question is, do you think that's going to work for the next 15 years? Do you think with the next generation is going to be this polarization? Because right now, it's our grandparents that were there, you know, identified in one side or the other. And uh, somehow, like, I'm on 47 now, I'm a of course, I have family tradition, but it's not as strong as it was mm -hmm. with my mom and dad. And my kids are like uh, the Instagram generation mm -hmm. and TikTok uh, generation. So um, do you think that uh, this will last uh, for the next 15 years? Or do you envisage that there is going to be, um, you know, a, a, a decrease on this intensity of polarization? Well, this is a, a, a great question. I think that the left versus right polarity, which is a, the great political division of modernity, it started with the French Revolution. I don't think it's going to end soon, uh -huh. but it, 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 it evolves. So, for instance, among the youth, what we see is that parties that are you know, growing the, the most uh, uh, among the youth is either neoliberals who are taking the, 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 the place of the traditional right wing. And they're, they're saying, if market works and I'm young and successful, it needs to work for me. I want a flat tax. Uh, and if it works for me, it seems to be working for everybody. And then, not, not of course, not all the youth believes in that agenda because the other half of the youth is worried with climate change and is worried with uh, prejudice, is anti-racist, anti is uh, anti-sexist, is trans-inclusive. And that other uh, believe, part of yeah. the youth is taking the place of the traditional left. Yes. So the right and the left is going to evolve along lines of 
more individualism on one side uh-huh. and more a more cooperative spirit on the other side that sometimes the traditional left confuses for statism and they believe that young people they are in love of statism no young people they uh, want to have good public services but they also wish to have a great deal of autonomy in their lives that's why I'm saying the classic social security system has to work we don't want to give one inch of territory to those who want to dismantle social security but it's also only natural that social security is going to evolve and adapt to people who want to go back to school for instance if they think that they need to renew their careers uh, but whether polarization will subsist or not i think depends very much on the war in europe um, on how we face climate change now going back to my work as a as a historian you have had periods of high polarization in the past i, I always uh, enjoy a lot talking about in the in in medieval europe the guelphs and the ghibellines which are very famous italy was then famous because it was the country where political rivalries were most intense people would not speak to one another across the street they would dress differently they would cut their fruit pieces differently in order to show i'm a guelph or i'm a ghibelline and why because italy was the the, the most complex most advanced and 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 the, the the economy that was the society that was transforming the most in europe in the time they were linked to asia that's how the black plague arrived they were inventing capitalism they were selling their product bringing chinese products and selling them in in uh, bourgogne or whatever so, so as society was changing a lot people were afraid of that of that change part of the elite in cities like florence where they were adapting they were living together with the new globalization with the new capitalism yes. they were the guelphs you had right-wing Guelphs, so to say, and left-wing Guelphs, you know, like uh, Dante and the others were more with the, with the lesser people. And you had people that, that were more territorial, that clinged more to the emperor, uh, uh, that were maybe more rural, and those, those were the Ghibellines. That, that subsists for a long time. Yeah. Uh, until the point where historians were writing about that and trying to remember, what was that about? Well, <laughs> we were not on speaking terms with one another. There were wars, there were massacres, but we don't remember the reason for the polarization. And this is because polarization is the generator of new polarization. So the new Guelphs and Ghibellines of today are the red states versus blue states, leavers versus remainers. Uh, and you have every country is our neo-Guelphs and our neo-Ghibellines. If you have a war, if you have an ecological crisis that you have to face up to, uh, and politics accelerates, then these polarizations may change. Um, but you need what you need to do is you need to tell people to not be afraid. There's a solution for this. Here it is. I'm not saying there's a solution for everything. I'm not saying we must not say we have all the solutions. We are not populists after all. But we have to say, you know, there's a a way out. If progressive politics is about despair, people will despair and they will vote for for the far right. So we have to be optimistic, which is sometimes if you look at what's happening, the... With votes, it's sometimes not easy. But if you're not optimistic, why would people mobilize with you? Yes, yes. To bring hope. That's one of the main responsibilities as politicians and progressive and green politicians. Um, just uh, let's uh, then finalize this. Rui, tell us what's, uh, what's next uh, in, in your agenda mm-hmm. uh, with Libre and uh, what's your, your immediate plans. And uh, tell, us, um, tell us one particular thing that you are happy and satisfied, a successful little story of, uh, of uh, this, last, uh, this last period and how you've managed to, uh, to yeah, you've managed to, to stay in the parliament. You are now like a, a visible politician. You have, as you have pointed out, managed to get uh, in the agenda uh, topics that were not that obvious. So tell us one, one specific success that you're specifically proud and then what's next in your agenda? Well, I think that... Portugal is a country that needs to have a new development model. Our old and current development model was cheap labor, 
both in tourism and in, in uh, industry with basic products that need to be injected with technology, with complexity, with knowledge, uh, in order for us to have a more qualified economy that can raise wages and reinforce social security and produce the financing, the funding that we need for excellent uh, uh, public services. That's what's going to attract people to a country that is a very peaceful country. It is a very safe country. With, with I think, as, as a, a Portuguese who, lo who loves Portugal with an interesting culture and history and with a, you know, a, good, a good environment and, and yes. cuisine that people <laughs> will like to live. So if we do have a good national health service, if we do have good public transportation, people will come to Portugal and help us. Either the Portuguese that have emigrated yes. or people from around the world will come to Portugal and help us make a knowledge and decarbonized economy that does not need to be just trying to catch up with the average of uh, European economies. I think that both Portugal and Spain have had this in the 80s and the 90s. Our dream was being in the in the in the median yeah, line the average, of, yes. in the average and that was good enough for our parents to not immigrate and stay if things are going if we are going to go from being a poor country to being in the average like a normal average european country that's enough for us but it's not enough for the youth mm -hmm. to stay because wages are not At high enough level, yes. but we can be in a way avant-garde economies in europe in many areas creative industries with our we are very much linked to uh, the rest of the world to the americas to africa uh, and that's wh where part of the action is and uh, our societies also reflect that with lots of immigration from latin america and from africa uh, which makes us in in cultural terms i think uh, societies with with great potential for the, for the future and you were asking me what am I proud about is that we have a kind of a formula that the new development model for Portugal is being a knowledge and decarbonization economy uh, with higher value. And this has become a kind of a mantra and other people are repeating it. So when other parties start stealing your formulas, it's because it's working. A practical thing, and this in this I, I will go more uh, pan-European uh, because I, I wish to convince people about the, the, the goodness of this idea, which is not apparent at first, I think that we also need to have objects of political desire at the European level. Uh, we need to have places where this European identity materializes. It strikes me as odd that if, if you want to affect change in any of our country, everybody knows in which square of the city they need to gather you know if they, if they need to to abolish the regime everybody knows where it is there is a location in the capital where is a square in front of the parliament usually where you need to affect change but if you need to affect change at the european level you know people will say well you know demonstrate in front of the commission that won't do because it's yeah. you know the council will yes. have the last word so demonstrate in front of the council that won't do oh. because the, the 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 governments aren't there so what shall we do, we, we saw this during the Eurozone crisis in the South. Uh, shall we go and demonstrate in Berlin so that we <laughs> convince the Chancellor that they need to uh, uh, go for Eurobonds? Well, now we uh, have to do a tour, huh? Not, uh, not yeah. only is going to be... Shall we do a tour of, 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 the, of the capitals? So the idea is, why don't we create an European library in each member state? which is a place where we have a kind of a European legal deposit, where we have the books of the other countries, where you have translations of the other European languages, because we, we, we read much more easily a successful author from, from the United States than a successful author from Slovenia. Uh, although Slovenia has at least one successful author like Zizek, <laughs> but, but we don't know the others. <laughs> and maybe there's... Even that's more interesting there, um, and and that's also a meeting place. That's a place where all the Erasmus students will meet up for regular debates on after a Spanish election or a Polish election, where we can discuss. Or maybe we can demonstrate in front of it when we are angry with our union, which will happen uh, now and then, or, or sometimes frequently. That are linked. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe we can co-demonstrate and see what the other people, uh, maybe there's a screen that's going to show you what's going up in Riga, in Lisbon, in Copenhagen. Uh, but it's also material. 
this is where my historian uh, um, feeling comes to the fore. Uh, sometimes we think that the future is going to be all delocalized and dematerialized. Part of it will, but part of it won't. We need to have locations. That's where our heart is. So if you need to create identities, and we need to create identities in order to move us to the future and for people to not just cling to, mm -hmm. to their fears of the other and so on and so forth, we also need locations. We also need squares. We need buildings. We need libraries. We need pan-European universities. And we need to... Greens needs to be at the forefront of creating these objects of political yes. desire for, uh, for European citizens. Okay, well... Well, with this romantic idea of creating a network of European libraries in every capital of Europe, which uh, we hope that the Green Group in the European Parliament picks up and uh, make Good. it a priority for uh, this uh, last part of the mandate, we want, really want to thank you uh, for this smart analysis on how and why uh, support our vegan governments uh, and also of acknowledging the importance of, uh, of our history and uh, in order to understand or make the correct analysis of nowadays challenges. Thank you very much, Rui. It's been a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And uh, we're very much looking forward to, uh, to hearing from you on what, uh, yeah, on the next steps uh, of Librian in Portugal. Good luck. Okay. Thank you. Talking to these two speakers, it's a great reminder of how important it is to have healthy opposition in a democracy. Green, progressive voices, even when they aren't in government, still play a critical role by pushing for accountability and transparency and influence in public and political discussions. Thanks for listening in, and this time an especially big thanks to Mara Garcia. This council was her last as Secretary General of the European Greens, and after more than seven years of tirelessly driving our vision and political impact to new heights, she decided not to run again. But we hope that it won't be her last time on this podcast. If you liked this episode, don't forget to share it and stay tuned for the next one. And as always, think global and act local.